Perhaps some of you remember <clears throat> from history about uh, the expedition to the North Pole uh, by Sir John Franklin. Back in the 19th century, he was uh, commissioned with two ships, the Erebus and the Terror, and they were going to go up and explore the North Pole. Um, for their provisions, uh, they still have the log of provisions, and they were great. But, but for preparation, in case of trouble, they only had one extra uh, engine, one extra steam engine, and 12 days worth of coal. That was the entire uh, allotment given to the extra provisions in case there was any trouble that they would run into. But on the ship's log and what was boarded on the ship were these things. A, a, uh, and this was going to be a two to three year voyage. On each ship was a 1200 volume library. They had a hand organ playing 50 tunes, china play settings for officers and men, cut, cut glass wine goblets, sterling silver flatware. And for their special clothing, they only had Her Majesty's Navy's uniforms, no extra provisions. Now, we, we look at this, and of course, the expedition failed. Uh, it's been determined that they all died. In fact, they um, died a, a terrible death at the North Pole. Uh, we look at this and we think how foolish to be unprepared for such a hazardous journey. And yet we have the graciousness of God speaking to us through Christ regarding our own preparation to see him. You know, last week we looked at the nature of what happens at the very end of this present age. How is it all going to happen? And Jesus kind of articulated. Remember the disciples, he was answering two questions of the disciples. What's going to happen at the end and when is it going to happen? So he explained what was going to happen. We talked about that last week. Well, this week he speaks to the issue of when will it happen? And, and the need to be prepared. Now, I want you to see that anytime Jesus speaks about his return, it's never in a kind of an academic speculation, but it's much more of a pastoral consideration that we might be ready. In fact, the next three parables in Matthew 25 will all speak to how to be ready for this great and glorious day of his return. And, and, and I want to kind of organize my sermon around three things that I want you to think about regarding how to be ready for this kind of unexpected timing. The first thing is don't predict the date. Let's, the first thing we're going to see is don't predict the date. The second thing is don't be surprised. And the third thing is going to be don't be lazy. Don't be inactive. So those are the three things we're going to talk about. The first one is found right in 36, though. If you look at that with me, in verse 36, you have this idea where he says, he says, for, um, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Now let me remind you, the certainty of his coming is clear. We saw that at the end of last week. Remember he said that lightning is going to flash from the east to the west? So the sky is going to be lit up, and then what's going to happen? The, the stars will go dark, the heavens will be shaken, and then Jesus Christ will come back on a cloud with great power and great glory. And then here's what he said. He said, the heavens and the earth are going to pass away, but my word will, not, will never pass away. So he's making it clear that his coming is certain. His word is true. His word is sure. I mean, think about the ministry that we've studied. He said that I've come to heal the sick. He did heal the sick. He said that I've come to give sight to the blind. He did give sight to the blind. 
He said, I have come to, to let the captives free. He did do that. He said, I've come that I would suffer and I would die and be raised. He did do that. I mean, what has Jesus said that hasn't come true? Do you realize that out of 260 chapters in the New Testament, 318 times we're told that he's going to return? There is a certainty that we are never to waver on that he is coming. Now, grant you, what he's saying here in 36 is, my, my coming is certain, the timing is not. There is going to be an uncertainty to the timing. We talked about that last week. There's going to be a delay. That's why he said concerning the hour and the day, no one knows. Now, last week we did talk about, Jesus said that it's going to be like the fig tree when the branch gets tender, you know, and you know that summer is near. But to know the coming of a season is not the same to know the coming of the time, the day or the hour. He says, no one will know, not the angels of heaven, nor the Son. Now, now let me just stop there for a minute. This is a, a slight digression that hopefully will be helpful to you. Many of us, you've been raised, you've understood in the faith that Jesus Christ is divine. He is the divine nature, he knows all things. And yet here we have him saying, I don't know. So how do we reconcile these two things? How do we reconcile this divine omniscience of, of Jesus Christ with, but I don't know, the hour or the day? Well, let me read you a text from 2 Corinthians. I think this kind of gives some help in understanding. In 2 Corinthians 8, Paul writes, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Jesus Christ was absolutely rich in all glory, in all wisdom, in all power. This is speaking to his divine nature. That he knows all things. He's created all things. He sustains all things. And yet Paul says, and yet for your sake, though he was rich, he became poor. In other words, this is speaking to the, to the fact that Jesus Christ took on a human nature. He wasn't always one with a human nature. He always had a divine nature, but he took on a human nature. And taking on a human nature, he took on our limitations. So he sweat when he worked. He got fatigued after a long day. He wept. He grieved. He grew in wisdom and stature, it says in Luke 2. He took on a human nature. Now, he never stopped being God. His divine nature never ceased operating. The beauty of it is that in his poverty, even in his poverty of being willing to not know the hour or the day, he continued to be God, and yet he continued to identify with us. The beauty of it is you have Christ, fully divine, fully human. So, so he is sustaining the entire universe, and yet he sweats when he works. He knows all things, and yet he voluntarily moves in ignorance, in poverty of knowledge in his human nature for us. I mean, the condescension of Jesus to identify with us isn't simply a mystery that's to leave us kind of with our, with our jaws dropped, but a wonderment over his kindness and grace to us, that he would do this for us. So when he says, neither the angels of heaven nor the Son know the hour, he never ceased being God. But in his human nature, he had the poverty of ignorance over knowing the day and the hour. 
I wanted to explain that to you because it's troubling for some, but that's not the point. The point that he wanted us to know, don't predict the date. No one knows. Don't predict it, just plan for it, is what he's saying. Now, many of us here, I think, we tend to err in two ways with this verse 36. We tend to err in the sense that we either don't think about it or we don't even look for it. Perhaps some of you here right now, this whole week you haven't thought about Jesus Christ returning. Maybe this month. Maybe it's been six months. You haven't even given thought to the fact that he can and will return. Maybe it hasn't even occupied your mind. And yet it stands as the culmination of all of his work on the cross. And yet we haven't even thought about it. Well, this is what I love about the grace of God. You know, we go through these texts of Scripture, and we go through text after text after text. It's God's grace to convict you right now. If you haven't thought about it, and you're convicted, thank him for that. I mean, the fact that we're just plowing through scriptures means that we're going to be getting a steady diet of those things that our minds might not be drawn to. And isn't it kind of God to do that? To not leave us in the dark in the corner and then surprise us and say, see, I told you to remember. But he's giving us grace by reminding us. So if you haven't thought about it, I want to move you to think about it. Now, some of you, the other error is to overthink it and to speculate and and to set dates and to consider what has to happen before he returns. And we end up, why do we do that, by the way? Why do we constantly set dates? It's amazing. I googled how many people have predicted the end of the world. It's like eight pages of, of some smart people, some idiots, but some smart people all trying to predict the date. Why do we do it? I, I, I don't know. Perhaps it's, it's that it, it fills up our time so that we don't have to prepare. We can just predict it. We can just talk about it. It's like me always talking about the project I'm going to do that I never end up doing. Oh, I talk about it, and I enjoy talking about it. I make all kinds of plans, but I don't do it. Maybe it's that. But for us, Jesus is instructing us, don't predict the date. Just plan for it. Prepare for it. Folks, this is... The way that you think about that day is an expression of the faith that you have or the faith that you need. If you never think about the day, are you saying he isn't going to come back? He said, I will come back. So the degree to which we prepare, the degree to which we watch, the degree to which we think about it is really somewhat self-revealing about our own faith. I would encourage you to think about it with great joy. I mean, think about the day. You know, John Newton has that song, Day of Judgment, Day of Wonders. For the Christian, it's a day of wonder. I mean, can you imagine the glory of the day? You know, Paul says in Philippians 3.20, he says, um, our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly, we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus. Are you eager about the day? And I think about, you know, that we have the expression, of course, in English, the eager beaver. You know, the beaver's always diligent. The beaver's always moving. The beaver's always working. The beaver's always planning. Are we eagerly waiting for him? I mean, to what degree do you yearn for him to return? What degree do you long for that? How often does it occupy your mind? Is it because it's uncertain that you are not eager? You know, John Calvin, the great reformer, said this about the uncertainty. He said this, he wishes the day of his coming to be so hoped for and looked for that no one should dare to ask when it will come. 
The uncertainty of his coming, which for the most part induces idleness in men, ought to be a stimulus to our attention and our watchfulness. Folks, maybe this is a point of confession for us as a church. Maybe we need to stop and think, you know, why don't I think more about it? Can we not preach this to ourselves every day? Can you not get up in the morning and think, God, today may be the day. It may not be, but, but I want to think about it. I want to be watchful over it. I want to consider it. Can we not encourage one another toward the day? I mean, otherwise, this sermon could, could just fade into the sermon three weeks ago, where right now you're thinking, what did he preach on? What did he say that day? We don't want to be unprepared for this day. So let's not predict it, but let's plan it. Okay, secondly, let's not be surprised by the day. Let's not be surprised by it in any measure. And let me remind you, you are a pilgrim. You are a pilgrim. And pilgrims don't build houses to stay in them. They only build temporary shelters to rest before moving on. Because the pilgrim is always going to the destination that they're hoping for. That's us. So let's not predict, let's plan. Okay, secondly, let's not be surprised by the day. Let's not be caught. Listen, if I tell you I'm having a surprise party for you, you won't be surprised. That's what he's doing. Don't be surprised. It's coming to you like the days of Noah. He gives us three illustrations here. The first one is like as in the days of Noah. Now you know, now I don't think he's comparing the sins of Noah's day to the sins of the last day. I think he's pointing out that the people didn't expect it. They were eating, they were drinking, and they were marrying, and they were giving in marriage. All good things, all very good things. And the flood came. Noah had been preaching, by the way, and he was building this big boat that they had never seen before. But you know what? The normal seas of life just kept going on. Sun rises, sun sets, sun rises, sun sets. You get up, you go down. You get up, you go down. And they were totally unprepared. In other words, the day of his coming, things are going to be normal. Many of you have been raised with a theology that the skies are going to darken and there's going to be all these signs that make it all so clear so you can make a quick change before he returns. It seems to be quite normal. It's going to be very, very normal. People are going to be getting married. People are going to be dying. People are going to be eating. They're going to be shopping. They're going to work. So it's a warning to us. His coming is going to be sudden. It's unexpected. But it's also irreversible. Notice the two in the field and the two grinding grain. What's this all about? Now, some people will look at this verse as indicating that one is taken away into heaven. And this would be support for a rapture, a catching up of the saints before the final seven years of tribulation. That may be true. I don't know that it's here. He could be taking in judgment and the one left could be spared. It doesn't say. I mean, Matthew actually uses the verb to be taken more in judgment than to be taken to safety. But either way, in the text, there doesn't seem to be any indication of some supernatural event taking people away. I think what it's speaking about, and we'll talk more about that next week, I think what it's speaking about is there'll be a separation. The father and the son plowing the field. One knows Christ, one doesn't. There's a separation that will take place. Perhaps the mother and daughter grinding grain. Or the two friends that have ground grain for years. There's a separation that comes up. We commingle as children of God. We commingle with children of the world. And there's going to be a day when they're separated. One's taken, one's not. And it's an irreversible condition. 
You know, J.C. Ryle, the Anglican preacher in London in the 19th century, said this. He said, in the day of our Lord's return, there shall be at length a complete division. In a moment, the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, each party shall be separated from the other forevermore. Wives shall be separated from husbands, parents from children, brothers from sisters, masters from servants, preachers from hearers. There shall be no time for parting words or a change of mind when the Lord appears. All shall be taken as they are and reap according to how they have sown. Be so fast, so sudden. Just one taken, one left. But then the third illustration is about this thief in the night. That, that there was a thief in the night, and the master of the house didn't stay awake, and so he suffered the loss of, of not being prepared. Now, to understand this, I, I think we have to assume there must have been some warning given about town that a thief was present or things had been stolen. It wouldn't be reasonable to assume that every night I'm supposed to stay awake just in case a robber may come. Nobody does that. I think the fact is that a warning had been given, and this master of the house is the fool for not heeding the warning. He knew it, and he didn't stay awake, and so he suffered loss. In accordance with Jesus giving a warning that I am coming back at an hour that you do not expect, you better be prepared, you better be alert. It's the kindness of God that he says, stay awake, stay alert, be watchful. Of course, he's not speaking about literal sleep, right? Next week, we're going to look at the, at the five foolish virgins and the five wise virgins. By the way, they all sleep. So it's not about sleeping. It's about a spiritual slumber that I'm talking about, that many of us kind of move in this spiritual, this spiritual lethargy of considering these things of God. Paul warns the Thessalonian church, he says, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake to keep awake and be sober. There's a, there's a sense of spiritual liveliness that has to take place in us. Now remember, Jesus, if you look back in the beginning of 24, you'll see Jesus is speaking to the disciples privately. He's speaking to the church here. This isn't for the world. This is for the professing community. This is for us. The, the, those who profess to walk in faith, so he's warning right now that we're not to be slipping into spiritual lethargy. That's a sobering thing, is it not? So why are we? Why is it for you, perhaps, that it's been a month since you've even thought about it, made any plans, increased watchfulness? Why? I mean, what dulls us to his warnings? Why don't we heed the warnings? Let me just throw out a few options for you. Maybe one will resonate with you. Number one, I think there is a struggle to stay actively aware of his return because of the normalcy of life, right? We do. We get up in the morning, we eat, we go to work, we come home, get changed, eat, go to sleep, we go shopping, go to church, go to our friends. There is a certain just kind of debilitating dullness to the ongoing nature of life. Every day it's the same thing. It'll never change. It's always been this way. It's always going to be this way. By the way, if that resonates with you, this is exactly what the non-believer says in 2 Peter. Peter warns about this. You know, when people discount the coming of God, in 2 Peter 3, he says this. 
He says, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. There is a certain just dullness that takes place in us over this ongoing, repetitive life that we live. We have to be aware of that. I think that slows us down. But secondly, there's a loss of transcendence in our culture. We don't, we don't look up anymore. As the theologian says, we live in houses without skylights. And we, don't, we live in a very secularized, post-enlightenment, kind of a, 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 a rationalistic age where the God of our time is science. And to speak about a man coming from heaven to bring glory and power and set up his kingdom is just simple foolery. It's foolery to the, to the common man or common woman. I quoted from Russell Moore, an ethicist, uh, on his, from his book Onward. I want to quote him again. He, he was speaking with a woman. She was an atheist, a lesbian, progressive, and uh, was explaining. He, he kind of gave a talk on the sexual ethic of the Christian. And she came up to him and couldn't believe anybody in normal America thinks that way anymore. Just couldn't believe it that you wouldn't just sleep with the person you were dating if you wanted to. She, she was just flabbergasted. And here's what she said. She said, so do you, she explains her position and the, and the general tenor of our culture. And she says, see, do you see how strange what you're saying sounds to us, to those of us who are out here in normal America? In other words, this idea of Jesus Christ coming from heaven to live like us, to take upon himself our nature, to represent us before the Father, and then to suffer for our sins, to be crucified so that he would bear the curse that we should have before a holy God. He bears the curse, suffers and dies for us, that he might reconcile us to the Father, that he might make us into a new creation, that he might restore us to everything God intended human nature to be, in perfect beauty and glory. That's what Jesus did. Just, you know, that sounds so strange. And so he said to her, here's what he says. She snapped me out of my daydream by asking again, seriously, do you know how strange this sounds to me? I smiled and said, yes, I do. It, it sounds strange to me too. But what you, what you should know is we believe in even stranger things than that. We believe in a previously dead man. He's going to show up in the sky on a horse. And we believe some strange things. It's true. I mean, I mean, this is where the Spirit of God in us is confirming with the Spirit of God. This is true. It's true. And if you believe it, you hold firmly to it. That's the grace of God in your life. We live in a very secularized age. And I think, I think it leads to a certain sense of embarrassment that we have over this doctrine. I think we don't think about it a lot because it's kind of embarrassing. Not only are we in a secularized age, but we have a lot of people who keep, who keep telling us when the date of his coming will be. You know, Charles Spurgeon said, as soon as someone tells you the date of his coming, you know it won't be that day. It will not be that day. But they do. Harold Camping, the last one, he has since died in the past few years. He kept making all this noise about coming. People were selling their property. They were selling their things because he was coming. But John Miller in the 19th century in England, father of the Adventists, hundreds of thousands of people sold their stuff because he predicted a date. It's embarrassing sometimes. Don't let it be. 
Another reason that I think we've, we've lost the edge in heeding this warning, another reason why we might be surprised is just because we have a really nice life right now. We in Western culture have very nice lives. You know, it's kind of the slumber that comes upon you after a huge turkey dinner at Thanksgiving. We're just, we're just filled with good things. It's like the Turkish delights of C.S. Lewis, Chronicles of Narnia. We just keep popping them in, and they just kind of make us more tired and dozy, and, and, and we kind of just move away from any sort of watchfulness. These are good things, people. They're not bad things. We're not, we're not dining on lust and adultery and murder and malice. It's the good things of marrying and giving in marriage and eating and drinking. Luke adds doing business, plowing, planting. Those are all good things. But they can occupy our minds so much that it kind of dissuades us from thinking about being alert. I look at marriage. Marriage is a great thing. It's a gift of God. I look at my marriage with Carol. For me, it's a heaven of sorts. It really is. And I have to remind myself it's a foretaste. It's a shadow of the fullness that God has for us in himself. These good things are just pointers to us. That's what they are. They're not to occupy us so that we are deluded from reminding ourselves that he's coming back. And it's going to come back swift and sudden and irreversible. And it's going to be a day of wonders for the Christian. This comfort in Western culture, you do not have to convince a Christian in Raqqa, Syria. You don't have to convince, you don't have to wake her up to the desire for God to make all things new, do you? If you're a Christian and you find yourself transported to Raqqa, you'd be screaming for this day. You'd want this day. Suffering wakes us. Comfort lulls us into sleep. I'm the most slothful on vacation, if truth be told. I've got to sometimes make lists for myself as to what I want to do to stay spiritually active because I can just get so casual. And it's so comfortable, and it's so easy. And sometimes God's so far away from my mind. On vacation. A.W. Tozier, many of you know him, he was kind of a prophetic voice in the 20th century, he said, another reason for the absence of real yearning for Christ's return is that Christians are so comfortable in this world. They have little desire to leave. He says, we all want to reserve the hope of heaven as a kind of insurance against the day of death, but as long as we're healthy and comfortable, why change a familiar good for something about which we actually know very little? So reasons the carnal mind, and so subtly that we are scarcely aware of it. Another reason that we, we fade away from and we're open to being surprised is we know little of heaven. I remember a friend of mine when I was in missions working with refugees, he came up to me and he said, I don't want the return of Jesus until I can get married and have sex with my wife. And I thought, buddy, I think you might be, it's a lot better than sex will be. Now, you may not know that right now. You will know that. But, but we have a little view of heaven. We have this idea that it's not a big deal. And so somehow this sexual intimacy is worth holding off the glory of Christ invading our world to bring about his glorious kingdom. There's all kinds of reasons. Why are you dissuaded from thinking on this? Why does it occupy so little space in your mind? Why does it have such little time in your day? Third thing I think Jesus warns us over. 
is don't be lazy, don't be inactive. Look with me at the parable of 45 to 51. This is really kind of an interesting parable. Jesus often speaks in this binary fashion, right? The wise servant, the foolish servant. And he's trying to get us to see where we are on this continuum. And he talks about this wise servant. This wise servant, remember now what a servant does? He's a servant of the house. He has responsibility to take care of the other servants in the house, take care of the administrative duties while the master's away. The master's gone on a trip. He knows it. He doesn't know how long he's going to be gone back then. We didn't have cell phones, cars, and so it could be a long time. And he's busy about doing what he's doing. He's a faithful servant, isn't he? He's a wise servant. He's, he is somebody you'd want working for you. That while you're away, they're maintaining the roles and responsibilities that they're to have. And so he does these things. Notice the reward that he's given. The reward in heaven is greater responsibility. Because now he's moved from overseeing the house to overseeing all the master's possessions. But look with me at the wicked servant. The wicked servant, notice what it says in the text. He says to himself, or literally... He says in his heart, my master is delayed. There's an indefinite period of time. He's not coming back. I've got plenty of time. And so with that time, he begins to abuse his privilege and his position. He begins to abuse the slaves. He begins to take advantage. He begins drinking with the drunkards. In other words, he's moving in a self-indulgent lifestyle. He is living large right now. But the day comes, and the master comes. He's not ready. He's totally unexpected. And it says he's going to be cut in two, literally. Cut in two. Now, I don't think that means literal, because right after that, the phrase is that he's going to be put with the hypocrites, which is to remind you of Matthew 23, the Pharisees. I think it's an expression of severe punishment. You see it in the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. The weeping of gnashing of teeth is giving you both the fate of the wicked, but also the nature of their punishment. You can imagine the, the weeping, the regret over what did I do? Why didn't I? Th-? You can just imagine the regret must be just as thousands of tons of cement just leaning on you, the regret. And then the sadness. He puts this in such stark fashion for us to be alert, to be awake. What do you do? How can you be ready? I mean, that's what this parable is over. It's giving us a picture. If you want to see what it looks like to be ready, here it is, the wise servant. So what do, you, what do we draw from this? Well, well, the first thing about being ready here, so that we're not lazy and inactive, the first thing to draw is we have to be trusting Christ. That's the first thing. Whether you're religious here or you're not religious to be ready for the coming of Christ, there is a trusting of Christ. But for the non-religious, if you have never come to understand the gospel, it is seeing yourself as a creature now, no longer creator, but you're a creature, and there is a creator, and he's holy, and he's righteous, and he's given you everything you've ever had, and there's going to be a day you stand before him. And right now you're at enmity with him because you've been living as your own creator. And it's to repent of your sins and to trust in Jesus Christ who has come to reconcile. You, by bearing your sins in shame. So, so it's repenting of your sins and, and believing that Jesus is sufficient to save you and to bring you to the Father in a right relationship, reconciled and restored. But for the religious here, and for most of you here, you're probably thinking back, well, I've trusted Christ. I mean, back when I was 14 or 18 or 22, I'm not saying, have you trusted Christ? I'm saying, are you trusting Christ? 
I mean, presently, in your life, are you trusting Christ? Is there fruit born in your life? The fact that you pray to prayer, the fact that you, you, you cognitively understand the, the propositional truths of the gospel, to me, while important, not primarily so. Are you trusting Christ? Do you see fruit in your life right now? Fruits of repentance, fruits of reconciliation, fruits of of wanting to walk in holiness. Do you see these things in your life now? Have you seen them? Do you have a wake behind you of some degree of pursuit of godliness? Would others attest that you are trusting Christ? I mean, if your lifestyle, if you look back down the hall of your life over the last three, six, nine months, what would it indicate to you? Would it cause you to be encouraged by the work of God's Spirit in your life or not? Because if you don't see the evidence, the fruit, then don't be encouraged. Please, don't be encouraged. You're only deceiving yourself. So we want to trust Christ to get ready. But there's more. You know, when you look at your personal lives and you, you investigate, how do you do business? Are you ethical? Do you speak with truth? You know, how do you do um, relationally with people? Are you forgiving? Are you extending forgiveness? In Acts 24, Paul says, I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. Are you doing that? Are you striving to make sure your relationships are healthy and whole, even repenting of your sins? Are these present in your life? Are you pursuing holiness and godliness in your, in your sexual life? You know, Paul writes in Titus, he says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior. So in your personal lives, is there evidence of fruit? That's how we prepare. But, but also in our church lives. You know, Keith just spoke about the spiritual good to one another that we're to exercise. Is that taking place? Do you have people in your life that you're actively pursuing their spiritual good? That is the servant doing what the master called. We're called to love one another, serve one another, sacrifice one another, forgive one another. Are you engaged? I think about the passage, I think you read it, Keith, in Hebrews 10, about consider how you might stimulate one another towards love and good deeds. But what's he go on to say about that? In the verse he says this, he says, not neglecting to meet together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Do you see other people in your life that they're just kind of sliding to the side? Maybe they're not posting to church as often. Maybe they're not attending study with you. Do you ever think to call them or is that just something that the staff or the elders do? I, mean, that, I would say that's something you do. I mean, your responsibility is to encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. The day does approach. I don't know when it will be. It could be tomorrow. I don't know when it will be, but the fact is, it is getting closer by virtue of time moving forward. And are you encouraging one another? I I think about the role that you play in preparing one another for Christ is huge. Do you understand that? Another way of getting ready is that you're actively using the gifts God has given to you. You know, Jesus said clearly in John 17, he says, I have brought glory to you, Father, by doing the work that you gave me to do. Do you know that you have been given works to do? 
Do, do you realize God has, he says in Ephesians 2.10 that you are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared in advance for you to do. Do you realize that? Many of you say, I couldn't be doing anything. I, I don't really have any gifts. Well, according to scripture, you do, and you have works that you're called to do. I mean, think about that for a minute. You have works that you're called to do. What are they? How are you utilizing your gifts? I feel like so many of us are like these antique car collections. I used to work in a grocery store, and I worked as a meat cutter, if you can believe that. And, and the, the, guy across, the guy that owned the grocery store had this barn across the grocery store, and he had all these antique cars in it, Model Ts. I mean, they had some great old cool cars. And they'd sit there and just get dust all year long. July 4th, big deal, bring them all out. They'd go down the July 4th parade in the town I lived in, and, and then they're back in, the, back in the barn getting dust on it. All this money, all this expertise, all this beauty, all this ingenuity, all this history, all lost. All because they're just in a barn. And I feel like we're like that. We're like these antique cars. God has gifted you the spirit. God has given you his spirit. He's given you gifts. Whether you speak, speak with the words of God, whether you serve, serve with the strength that God provides. You have gifts. Are they being invested? That's what it means to be ready. That's what the servant did. Servant wasn't doing anything dynamic. He did not have a world preaching tour. He was not a big guy. He was just working in the master's house, doing what the master said. That's all it is. Or, or, or ambassador for God, you know, speaking to the excellencies. We just sang the task. I mean, there's a certain urgency to his coming that I want to stimulate you with, but I don't want to move you to fear. I don't want to move you to any sort of fear. Salvation belongs to the Lord. But I want to stimulate you to the urgency of this, that you have the gospel and, and that there is, a, there is a call upon the soul of every disciple of Christ to speak forth this news that when he comes, he's coming in glory and power and to repent, just like John the Baptist did. You know, it, it's interesting. Noah didn't know the hour or the day, but Noah was prepared. He was just building the ark and preaching. That's all he was doing. I don't want to set before your mind this idea like you've got to climb into some higher spiritual echelon to really be prepared. I'm just saying, be faithful. Just wherever you are, the gifts that you have, the engagement of those around you for their spiritual good, your own personal walk with God, that's how we're prepared. It isn't mysterious. It's not supercharged. It's just faithfulness, people. Think about Martin Luther when he was asked if, uh, what, what he would do if the world was going to end. Here's what he said. Martin Luther, the reformer of the 16th century, he said, even if I knew that tomorrow the world would go to pieces, I'd still plant my apple tree. We're going to be faithful in stewarding the plot of ground, the friendships that we have. John Wesley, preaching, this was in his diaries when he was preaching at the Spitalfields, he says, he preached on this sermon, Prepare to Meet Thy God. He goes, I largely showed the utter absurdity of the supposition that the world was to end that night. But notwithstanding all I could say, many were afraid to go to bed. Some wandered about the fields, being persuaded that if the world did not end, at least London would be swallowed up by an earthquake. I went to bed at my usual time and was fast asleep by 10 o'clock. The Christian has no fear when we're ready. I do want you to have a reverential fear if you're not ready. But if you're ready, there is no fear. We don't want to predict the date. We don't want to be surprised. We want to be alert. 
and, and we don't want to be inactive. We want to be active. Let's take a minute and just pray and ask God to bring conviction to those that need it and comfort to those that need it. Thank you.